All right, welcome everybody. Uh, so kids, uh, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed. Uh, junior, senior high, you guys are dismissed. Pastor Chris is rescuing you out of here uh, this morning. It is great to see everybody today. Can you even believe that next week is our Christmas service? So next week is the final Christmas before, uh, pardon me, the final of the final Christmas before Christmas. It's the final Sunday before Christmas. And uh, so next week, we'll uh, look at a, a message specifically just on, uh, you know, how Christmas provides us with some good news, which certainly I think we could all use a little of uh, right about now. So great opportunity to invite a friend and just uh, bring them along. We're going to worship. We have something special that the kids are preparing and uh, just an opportunity, again, just to be encouraged with the good news of the gospel. Um, two quick things I want to mention about next year. The, the Through the Bible program this year, uh, as Susie mentioned, it's a little different in that this year our hope is that we're all going to be listening through the Bible uh, in addition to just reading through the Bible. So the Dwell app is uh, specifically a scripture listening app that also has a component where you can read as you listen. Um, and as she said, they've really done a great job with this. The app's about four or so years old and they've really made a lot of great improvements. Um, there are, I think, 10 or 12 different voicings of the Bible, different translations of the Bible. There's ambient music or different sounds that you can put behind the reading of the Bible. Um, one thing that we forget is that the scriptures were initially written to be listened to and to be read aloud and for us to be heard. And reading the Bible, of course, is, is uh, fantastic. But there is something about listening to the word read to us, uh, especially in a devotional sense, where we're not able to stop and flip and cross-reference and, and do all these other things that we do, but we're sort of forced to leave all of that behind and just to listen and just allow the word to, uh, to flow through us. So I would really encourage you, uh, even you purists out there, to give this a chance Download the app. It's normally a cost-based app, but we have a church account, so we'll be able to offer it to everybody within the church uh, at no cost uh, for this year. Um, but for those of you who refuse to try anything new, God bless you, we'll also have a paper copy that you can take with you and so you can read along with us and, uh, and not miss out on all the fun, just some of the fun. Um, the other thing I want to announce uh, as it pertains to next year is that, so we're going to finish up the book of uh, 2 Peter today, and uh, then we'll have, as I said, a Christmas teaching next week and some, uh, some other fun stuff as we go into the new year. But as we start the new year, we're going to start our new book, which is going to be studies through the book of Joshua. And I'm really excited to be headed to the Old Testament I think we need some Old Testament in our lives, especially on a Sunday morning. And the book of Joshua, I think like no other book, uh, really gives us such an encouraging picture about really walking in the fullness of all it is that the Lord has provided to us. Most of us live lives that aren't as victorious, perhaps, as the Lord would have them to be um, because we're not taking advantage of all that he's supplied to us. And so the book of Joshua really gives us some instruction and some great application in how it is that we can kind of claim or walk in all of those promises that he's given us. So I'm really looking forward to that as we move 
uh, into January. Um, before this morning, um, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3, and you can turn there now, and let's pray and just ask that the Lord would really bless uh, his word as we finish up uh, this book today. So Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for all it is that you're doing uh, just through our church, Lord, all of the different opportunities that you provide us to study your word, Lord, from the men's and women's small groups, Lord, to those life groups, uh, those mixed groups in people's homes, Lord, to, um, Lord, the dwelling through your scriptures this year. We just, uh, we thank you, Lord, for the access that we have to your word, Lord, and we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would use that word to change us, Lord, to change our hearts, we pray. We ask this morning as we go to your text, Lord, that you would do that work in each of us personally, Lord, that you would open our ears, Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, give us understanding, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as I said, finishing up this morning in what is the last chapter of the last of these two letters that the Apostle Peter would write to the struggling church of the first century, and of course, which we know have become uh, really favorites for the church throughout the century, because they, these letters, like no other letters in the scriptures, really provide us with a place to turn in times of trial and difficulty in our lives. And you remember that in his first letter, we saw that the early church was facing this new kind of a coming wave of official persecution against them by Rome. Right, brought about by Caesar Nero. And you know the, the entire weight of the Roman Empire would now come to bear upon these brand new believers coming at them from all sides. And so we saw that Peter encouraged them you know, to not give up and just to continue to have hope, that living hope that they had in the midst of all of this. And then in his second letter, which we've been looking at for the last couple weeks, written likely from a Roman prison cell as Peter himself awaited his own execution as a martyr for his faith, Peter writes to the church again to encourage them to stand strong, but now you remember in the face of yet a new threat, an even more dangerous threat than that persecution that was coming upon them from outside of the church. It was this flood of false teachings that was kind of rising up from within the church. And we remember that Peter told us that this wasn't just a time for these believers to stand strong in their faith, but this was the time for them to really press in further and deeper to the things of the faith. It was the time for them to really focus on their growth in their knowledge we've talked about of the Lord Jesus. And remember last week at chapter 2, the second letter, Peter spoke very plainly. He spoke very directly about some real truth about false teachers that were rising up, saying that they're deceptive among you and destined for judgment, defective in character, damaging to the church, and, and worst of all, of course, they can be deadly for their followers. Remember, they were compromising the teaching of the faith. They were corrupting through covetousness these weak and unstable believers. And now this morning, kind of in his final chapter, knowing that his time was short, knowing that he would very soon be in the presence of the Lord in heaven, 
Peter's going to end off with a series of great encouragements to really remind us that our time is short as well, that we are living in what he calls the last days, and that therefore we need to be living like last days Christians. And I think we're going to see that this chapter once again really reveals Peter's heart as a, a loving pastor that's caring for those lambs, caring for those sheep that have been entrusted to him. We're going to see he uses the word beloved four different times, and each time he uses it, he's going to give us kind of a solemn admonition in how we can be living like these last days Christians. And he starts it right here in verse 1. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Savior. So Peter reminds them, he reminds us to always remember the word of God. Right? Those things which those holy men of old had written down as the Spirit moved them. And the things, he says, which even now he and the other apostles were writing to them in the very same way. And this is an especially important point, I think even aside from Peter's main point, because what it tells us is that Peter evidently was aware of the inspiration of the Spirit that was flowing through him and that was flowing through the other apostles just as surely as they knew it had flowed through Isaiah and through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. We know that Paul also writes of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about the church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone. And what's important to understand is that what Peter's trying to do here is not just to kind of promote his own ministry. He's not trying to lift himself up necessarily in the eyes of the people. Instead, he's trying to make sure that his beloved people can distinguish and discern between true servants of the Lord and those false teachers. He talks here about the apostles of the Lord and Savior. These weren't just any apostles. These were those first century apostles. These men who had seen the Lord. These men who'd been commissioned personally by the Lord to take his message to the world and to establish his church in the world. Because Peter knew that what these men were writing were nothing less than the very words of God. And he says that those are the things that need to fill our minds. We need to be mindful. We need to have our minds full, right, of God's word. To keep our minds pure and, and not to be confused by all of those false winds of doctrine that will blow through the church. Interesting, our English word pure, it comes from a Greek word which literally means to be sun-judged. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, except that, that English, our English word sincere is from a Latin word that comes from the same Greek word. It's sincera, and it means without wax. Now, that still probably doesn't make a lot of sense until you understand that in ancient times, 
some kind of unscrupulous salesman in the marketplace. I know it's hard to believe there would be unscrupulous salesmen in the marketplace. But what they would do when they had pots that were cracked is they would use wax to kind of fill in those cracks to cover up all the weak places in the pottery. So it all looked great until you held that pot up to the sun or until that pot sat too long in the heat of an outdoor market in the Mediterranean summer when all of a sudden you could start to see all of those filled in cracks and then all of this gunky wax that was melting and oozing out of them. And so a piece of pottery that was pure and that was without cracks was said to be sincere. It was without wax. And this is so important for us because so often today, so many people and even well-meaning believers, we try to stuff the cheap wax of worldly thinking or of false teachings, we try to stuff those things into the cracks in our Christian faith. And again, it looks fine from the outside until our faith gets held up to the sun, right? The S-U-N and the S-O-N, right? Or until our faith gets subjected to the intense heat of the trials that come our way in life. And all of a sudden what happens is that the wax of worldly thinking suddenly starts to melt away and it really reveals the weaknesses. So of course the question is how do we fill the cracks? Right? How do we fill these cracks that we all have in the faith, right, in, this, in the pottery, if you will, of our lives? Well, we fill them not with wax from the outside, but we need to fill them from the inside with the word of God, right? We need to flood ourselves so completely with God's word and then allow that to ooze out and fill all of these cracks and crevices because unlike wax, right, the word of God will never melt away. And I know that you know these things. I'm just reminding you of these things. And so Peter says, look, I know you guys know these things. I just want you to remember what you already know. I want you to call these things to mind. I want you to refresh your memory with what I've reminded you that I've already taught you, right? The things of the gospel, those things which initially purified your polluted minds. Because Peter knew that it was going to be especially important for them to be especially grounded in the word, to be mindful, right, not only to withstand this persecution that was coming from outside the church and these false teachings that were rising up inside the church, but also to withstand what he knew would be skeptics who would try to question the hope of the church. And so he says, look, stir up these truths, verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter understood that skeptics and scoffers would try and were already trying to call into question the eternal hope that we have in heaven. 
and that perspective that it provides in time of trials. That they would say, hey, look, you Christians talk about the fact that Jesus is coming back and that he's going to save you and that he's going to put everything right, that he's going to come and, you know, protect you from this persecution and take you out of this trial and that somehow in doing that, he's going to judge the rest of us. They said, well, you keep saying it, but we sure don't see it. And Peter also knew in a prophetic sense that he and his readers, and of course then us by extension, that they were already living in what he calls the last days. Now that's a phrase that the Bible uses to point to the entire period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Right now, right now, 2,000 years. And it's the last days. These are the last days because this is the final chapter in the book of man's rebellion on the earth against the Lord. Right Before the Lord Jesus returns to the earth to establish that thousand-year kingdom on the earth and rule in righteousness, right before he ushers in the creation of the new heaven and the, the new earth. And of course, the world scoffs at these ideas because they're looking at things from purely a physical perspective. Right? They don't understand the spiritual principles or the spiritual promises. They can't see that all of history is steadily moving right in that direction. They say, look, all we see is that nothing has happened out of the ordinary for 2,000 years. But notice this. This is important. Peter lets us in on a secret about these scoffers. He says they scoff not only because of what they think they see, but because they see what they want to see. Right, so the position of these scoffers, it's not intellectual, it's not even necessarily philosophical, it's surely not scientific, but it's back to that basic battle between light and dark. He says that the scoffers and the skeptics, look, it says there, are walking according to their own lusts. So they scoff at just the idea of Jesus returning and of God's judgment that's going to come with that, they scoff at that simply because they don't want to be judged. So they scoff that there is a judgment of God that's building in the heart of God towards sinful man and towards the, the sin that's wrecked this planet. They scoff at that idea that they, you know, that they would have to repent of their sin because they don't want to repent of their sin. They just want to continue in their sinful worldly lifestyles, continuing on possibly in their own sexual perversion, and they simply don't want anyone, including God himself, to dare to tell them that their sin is somehow wrong or that they are eventually going to be held accountable for it. But as we said last week, the judgment of God is the reason for the gospel of God. Of course, if anybody is familiar at all with anything in the Bible, it's what? It's John 3.16, right? Where Jesus, of course, talks to Nicodemus about how one can be saved. And he says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And how could that not right, be anyone's favorite Bible verse? 
But that's not all that Jesus said, is it? Because Jesus continued very clearly explaining in verse 17 that God does not, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because it was already condemned. Right? Jesus doesn't need to do that because it's already done. What Jesus came to do is to save people out of that condemnation. It goes on in verse 18. It says that he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this, he says, is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So again, people love what they want to love, they see what they want to see, they believe what they want to believe, and they're hiding in the darkness of their own depravity thinking that they are never going to need to answer to God for it. And what Peter tells us here is that people use modern history to prop up that position, that they say, look, God has never interrupted history to bring some kind of big judgment, right? For billions of years, they would say, things have just moved right along just as they always have. So in the very next verses, we shouldn't be at all surprised that what Peter does is he calls up one more time one of his favorite Old Testament texts to prove that God does indeed break into history to bring judgment. Look at verse 5. He says, for they willfully forget, right? They willfully forget because they want to forget what are some very inconvenient truths. He says, they will, this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So, effectively what he's saying is that they work hard through their endless theories and their lies to forget the fact that God is the creator of the world. Right? He says that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. So they want to forget that God created it and that he can and will judge it in the future because he's already judged it in the past. They desperately want to deny and forget that there was indeed another time in human history when men were scoffing and they scoffed ultimately to their own destruction. And of course, we all know the story from Genesis chapter 6, right? Day after day, decade after decade, as Noah constructed the ark, the ark which was not just a means of salvation, but it was a prophetic illustration of gigantic proportions. Because as the laughter of his friends and neighbors, right, probably drowned out all the sounds of Noah and his hammers until eventually one day the water canopy collapsed that was surrounding the earth in the days of iniquity. 
it says there the, the earth standing out of water and in the water. Right? Another translation says that he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. So there was a, a canopy of moisture that was present on the earth that collapsed and suddenly caused rain to fall. Water falling from the sky, it was an absolutely new phenomenon. It was something that had never happened before because up until that point, we're told in the book of Genesis that the earth, the green earth had always just been watered by mist that came up and the presence of all of that moisture in the atmosphere. But all of a sudden, something never experienced suddenly started happening that resulted in a worldwide flood a worldwide, cataclysmic, catastrophic flood that is evidenced even today, not just by the geological record, but by the record of some kind of a flood story in the written or oral history of virtually every culture all around the world. So just as the world was created by the word of God, that same world has been judged by God. Worldwide judgment is not at all unprecedented in human history. And we know from reading the story of Noah that when that judgment came, it came very, very quickly. Now here's something interesting for us to ponder. How many times have we watched Peter bring up the flood as an evidence of the fact that judgment will come? that there will come a point when God's patience is again exhausted by the sin and the, the rebellion of mankind and that judgment is going to come quickly again. Peter pointed to the flood on multiple occasions, as did Paul, as did Jesus. So, should it be any big surprise to us that one of the most attacked teachings in the Bible is the teaching about a literal worldwide flood and God's literal judgment of the wicked world at that time. And at the root of the skepticism and the cynicism is not science. No matter how hard they try to tell us that it is, the root lies in a desire for people to simply follow after their own flesh and to fulfill their own lusts and to be masters, if you will, of their own destiny. Destiny. Understand, the main lesson taught by the flood is that we live in a moral universe, that sin has consequences, that it won't go unpunished, and Jesus himself used the flood to point very clearly toward this truth during his first coming, and he will fulfill that truth at his second coming when he brings judgment with him. So, to deny that Jesus is coming back effectively allows people to live however they want because it completely removes any accountability to this God who created them because they just somehow evolved from some kind of an amoeba. There's no accountability to the creator who created them or to the warnings that he's given us in his word about the judgment. And yet Peter assures us, he reminds us in verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by that same word reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
So just as the world was destroyed in the days of Noah, it will be destroyed again, but this time not by water, by fire. And he says it's only still here, it's only being preserved because the, the creator has commanded, right? In fact, Peter says that the world is already reserved for fire. It's already set aside for judgment. It's, the idea is sort of that having already decided to judge the world, God is just holding the earth kind of on a layaway plan, right? Until that time comes for him to act and that the ungodly world and the ungodly themselves will have this confirmed reservation, Peter says there, with perdition, which simply means destruction. So we can let the cartoonists draw their characters of the, you know, the prophets of doom. We can let the, the world make its jokes. We can let the scoffers scoff. But Peter tells us we can take this fact to the bank, that just as those floodwaters rose in the days of Noah, that the world will be destroyed again, but this time by fire. And yet as we wait for this guaranteed outcome, right? We wait for this guaranteed event and we wonder why in the world is this taking so long? Peter reminds us next, not only do we have to live mindful of the word of God, but we have to live remembering the will of God. Because after addressing the ridicule that we face from the lost concerning the Lord and his delay that Peter's just talked about, now he goes on to speak the, about the restraint that we see from the Lord and some of the reasons for that. He says in verse 8, but beloved, there's that beloved again, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, we tend, as people, of course, to see history in terms of days and years, right? Whether they're past or present or future. But with God, time is always in the present tense, right? Because God completely transcends time. And so Peter agrees perfectly here with the psalmist. Psalm 90, it says that a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. And again, Peter says, look, you guys know this. You've read this. I've taught this. Just remember it, he says. Right? We've got the scoffers in verse 5 who willfully forget. But we as believers need to diligently remember that we're on God's timetable. Right? He's not on ours. And he keeps time very differently than we do. We see time as it relates to time, but God sees time only as it relates to eternity. And what to us may seem like a very long time, to the Lord is a very short time. The whole church age, right, since the first coming of Jesus to the earth, right, 2,000 plus years by this point, to us, in, you know, seems like a long time to us, but in God's eyes, how long has it been? Two days. It's barely been a weekend, right, from heaven's perspective. But, but here's something to consider, and I don't even know that I can communicate this right, but I think this is a mind blower because we can say that God sees time with a perspective that we lack, right? So even the delay of a thousand years might just seem like a day against the, the backdrop of eternity. But that also means that God sees time with an intensity that we lack. 
in that just one day with the Lord is like a thousand years of human history all packed into that day. And it just, you think about all of man's great wickedness and our sinfulness and our rebellion as a population across this planet just for the last 2,000 years and you cram that into two days. And we can only but imagine the intensity, right? The heartbreaking intensity which the Lord has allowed himself to painfully endure. You think about our incredible wickedness in all of just modern history towards one another with genocide and holocausts and ethnic, ethnic cleansing and just our sinful perversions and the, the way that man is collectively just shaking their fists at God and the collective rejection of his love. And we wonder why in the world and how in the world could he even stand to let this go on up until lunchtime on that first day. And yet look what Peter tells us next. He tells us the reason why God endures all of this. In verse nine, he says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's delay, what looks like a delay to us, God's delay is based on his desire to save our souls so that we can be in heaven with him. Right? His promise is to judge the earth, and yet his delay has nothing to do with this thought that he won't judge or that he doesn't have the power to judge. He wants to bring an end to the rebellion of man, but he also wants to save as many out of that rebellion as will possibly turn to him and be saved from the coming wrath. Because contrary to what some theological positions would try to teach us to believe, as God said of himself in Ezekiel, he said, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the death may turn from, pardon me, but that the wicked may turn from his way and live. God simply did not create any human being to be destined for damnation. But rather, as it says in Micah, he does not retain his anger forever because he what? He delights in mercy. God delights to shower his mercy upon anyone who will simply receive it, upon anyone who will simply humble themselves before him and simply admit to and then repent of their sin, which simply means to agree with God that they are wrong. It is so very simple, right? This is God's wish. He says he is not willing that any should perish. But understand that God's desire is not his decree. It's not as if God's, God has willed everyone to be saved despite their will on the subject. When other translations say that he's not wanting or that he's not wishing for anyone to perish. Paul says to Timothy that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So he longs that all would be saved because they choose to be saved. But he knows that so many will reject him and so he has delayed his coming judgment simply to increase the opportunity for men to come to him. 
So often people will wonder what God's will is for their lives. And I, you know, I, I may not be able to tell you what, you know, where he wants you to live or what he wants you to do or who he wants you to marry, but I can tell you that his will for you before any of that other stuff, his will for you is that you would come to repentance. And if you're here today and you've never done this, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you haven't begun that new life that he has for you, God will take no pleasure in your judgment. He'll take no pleasure in the eternal judgment that's due your sin, but he has done everything possible except to put you in some sort of a spiritual headlock and to touch and violate your free will. God has placed his precious son, Jesus, between you and death. It is not easy to end up in the eternal lake of fire. And a person needs to walk over the sacrificed, crucified body of Jesus Christ in order to get there. Or in the words of Hebrews, they need to trample the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insult the spirit of grace. That's what you need to do to end up in hell. God has done everything to keep a person from ending up there except forcing them to accept his Son because he won't force anyone to do that. He's wanting... He's waiting for you to do it, but you need to be the one to do it, or it wouldn't be you doing it, would it? It would be him doing it. So, in all of this, the fact that the world is even still in existence today isn't an evidence that God lacks power, but it is solely a testimony to his patience with sinful people. His desire to give sinful people a longer opportunity to turn from their sin and to turn to him. You know, as far as we understand prophecy, Jesus could have already come back after 1967 following the Six-Day War in Israel when Jerusalem was finally united. And so we ask, well, then why didn't he? Well, if you're with us this morning and you are among those who didn't get saved until after 1967, which I suspect is most of us, since many of us weren't even born yet, but if you're in that camp, then he delayed his coming for you. And aren't you glad that he did? So we need to remember, although we want so desperately for the Lord to come back, we can never forget what that will mean for those who don't yet know him. Because Peter reminds us in verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them, are in it, pardon me, will be burned up. So when the end comes, it will be sudden. Right? It's going to catch most of the people completely by surprise. So here, after discussing the delay of the Lord, Peter now starts to talk about the day of the Lord. 
And that, of course, points us right up to the end because the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament authors all use that phrase, day of the Lord, to identify not a single day, but a span of time during which God will personally intervene in human history to accomplish his plan for history. It's that period of judgment It describes the whole of the end time events that we have just spent the last four months or so, right, studying in the book of Revelation, right, beginning immediately after the rapture, including the great tribulation, right, that 70th week of Daniel, and then concluding with the commencing of eternity. And it's going to come quickly upon the earth, beginning as the church is suddenly raptured to heaven, Right? This is the period when God starts to act suddenly and act unexpectedly, intervening in human history in a worldwide and a supernatural way. Right? A thief obviously comes suddenly and comes when they're not expected. And in the same way, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that it's when the world thinks that all is well that that's when the judgment will begin. He says, for when they say peace and safety then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. So the world, thinking all is well, is going to be painfully surprised as the real contractions start to kick in. But we as believers shouldn't be at all surprised as we're finally caught away. And then as we've seen, this period of unprecedented sorrow and pain and judgment really starts here on the earth, all of it ultimately leading to the final destruction, Peter says, of the earth, the final judgment of God on this fallen creation. Remember, it's after Satan's final rebellion at the end of that thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus on the earth, when because the current heaven and the current earth have become so polluted by the presence of Satan and the presence of sin and of corruption that the present heaven and earth are going to be completely done away with and replaced, he says, by a new heaven and earth in one catastrophic event. He says the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. That certainly sounds like a big explosion to me. And we said it when we looked at Revelation chapter 21, that things are going to be dissolved, right? Just going up in this giant explosion, it will be a big bang. So man has it exactly the opposite, right? We didn't begin with a big bang, but we certainly are going to end with a big bang. And that's not just a theory, it's a promise. Everything that you see is just going to melt, Peter says, with fervent heat because Jesus will simply let go because the Bible says that he's the one who's holding it all together. In Colossians chapter 1, it says that by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So all things were made and are now held together in some way by Jesus. Now, without getting all too sciencey on you, right, even the sciencey people 
will tell us apparently that at the nucleus of every atom, right, billions upon billions upon billions of which make up everything that's material on our planet, planet that right there at the heart of every one of these atoms, they are made up of positively charged protons. And those very same sciencey people will tell us that according to the laws of electricity, that like charges repel. So we ask the question, well, what is it that keeps all these positively charged protons inside of every atom from simply pushing themselves apart? Well, with no better explanation, scientists call it a strong nuclear force, or sometimes even they call it atomic glue. Now, we, however, know what the scientists can't seem to explain, or maybe just what they don't want to accept, that the Bible says that it's by him all things hold together. That everything is supernaturally being held together by Jesus. As it says in Hebrews chapter 1, that he upholds all things with the word of his power. And yet Peter promises that there will come a day when Jesus simply lets go. And with one big, gigantic boom, everything is going to be completely wiped out, completely obliterated, vaporized completely, just as we've seen when there's a nuclear bomb. And yet this time, at the nucleus of every atom making up every item on the planet, every one of them is going to be blown apart. And really, when you think about it, this all makes perfect sense scientifically. Because after all, everyone knows that if you want to split an atom, you have to smash the bejesus out of it. Smash the bejesus out of it? Did you? The atom? Jesus? Okay. You go with me now? Okay. Thank you, whoever that is, for the pity laugh. So Peter says, look, in light of the fact, in light of the fact that everything that we see, that everything that we know, he says, therefore, since all these, this is verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, he says, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Well, I'll tell you one thing we shouldn't be. We absolutely shouldn't be materialists. If this material world is one day going to go away, then we shouldn't be investing in things of this material world. So not only, right, Peter reminding us, he's reminding us as last-day Christians, not only should we live mindful of the word of God, not only should we be remembering the will of God, but we also need to live for things that will last. Right? If everything that we can strive for materially is only going to explode eventually, then what really should be our priority? Peter says, holy conduct and godliness. And again, I know this is not news to you. I'm just reminding you, right? The message of the scripture from cover to cover is what? That we're pilgrims and sojourners while we're here on this earth. Absolutely, God can bless us with cars and he can bless us with houses and that's fine, but we're not to make them our priorities, but because they are just going to burn. They're going to dissolve. They're going to dissipate. Our priority instead 
should be to live holy, set-apart lives before the Lord because ultimately that's all that's going to last. That is all that is going to matter eventually. There's a, a great story told, who knows if it's really true, a great story told about an American tourist who visited a famous rabbi in 19th century Jerusalem. And she was astonished to see that this rabbi's home was just a very simple room filled with a bunch of books and a Torah, and then there was a little table and a chair, and so she asked, Rabbi, where's your furniture? And he says, well, where's yours? And she says, well, mine. She says, I'm just a visitor here. I'm only passing through. And of course, he smiled, and he said, well, so am I. All of this world is going to pass away, but that holiness and the godliness that we cultivate as we're passing through this world, that we will take to heaven with us. That's the way that God fits us for the rest of eternity as he heightens that hope of eternity in our hearts and then our lives start to increasingly reflect that hope. Remember, godliness and holy living is not a list of rules, regulations, and do's and don'ts and shoulds and shouldn'ts that we somehow set out to follow to try to make ourselves more godly. But holiness is just a state of the heart. It's the setting apart of our hearts to the Lord and then allowing the way that we live to naturally follow that, right? It's allowing that new nature that's inside of us to express itself. It's just having our hearts and our sights fixed on the Lord. So Peter says, hey, keep your eyes here on the big picture. He says in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So the, the flavor here of the text is that we don't just look for the day of God passively, but that we somehow have the ability to speed it along. Right? Instead of investing our hearts and our resources and our energies and our passions into the things of the world that we are watching and that we're waiting for the return of Jesus as we continually are serving him and we're just continuing to be busy about his business here for the things of the kingdom. And by doing that, Peter tells us, we can actually bring about the coming of the kingdom on earth. And some of you are saying, wait a minute. What about all that stuff you said about God's timetable, right? I thought God was sovereign. Well, absolutely he is. And yet in the scriptures, what we see is a sovereign God who allows himself to be affected and impacted by his people and their cooperation. Remember quickly back in Numbers chapter 13 as they were on the verge of entering into the promised land and the children of Israel sent out those 12 spies to check it out. But because they chose to retreat in fear rather than to advance in spirit, in faith, I almost said advance in space. They're not going into space yet. They're advancing in the conversations that I have with myself up here. You wouldn't believe if I let you. It would terrify some of you. Because they wouldn't advance in faith, they were then destined to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So the children of Israel actually slowed down God's divine timetable by 40 years. It wasn't a surprise to him, 
but they did it. How about Jonah chapter 3, where God declared through his petulant prophet, he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what happened? Much to, you know, much to uh, Jonah's delay, the people repented and God chose not to bring judgment on the city. So yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he's in control, but he factors in his sovereign plan and the attitude, he factors into that the attitudes and the cooperation of people. And so knowing this, Peter says that we can actually hasten the day of the Lord. So if you are tired of death and disease and depression, and if you've had your fill of sadness and sickness and sin, the Bible says that there are especially two ways that we can hurry the day when righteousness will finally rule on the earth. And so the day of God is hastened, first of all, by our prayer, isn't it? When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to ask that his kingdom would come. That's precisely what we're praying as we pray in Matthew chapter 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven. So prayer influences the timing of God, including the coming of his kingdom. So and secondly, we can kind of hasten the day of God, not only by prayer, but as we share. Because what we saw when we studied through the book of Acts, remember according to Acts 2, it was as the church did the things that the church was supposed to be doing. In Acts 2.47, it says that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, there's an important point that Paul makes, some insight he gives us in Romans chapter 11. He's talking about in the context of the current blindness of the Jewish people to the gospel, and the advancing of God's prophetic plan, Paul says this. He says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, here's the important part, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until all of the Gentiles that I know are going to be saved have been saved. So what this tells us is that there is someone, there is a Gentile, right, a non-Jew, there is a Gentile somewhere, perhaps alive today, who the Lord knows is the last one who will be added to the church to fully complete the bride of Christ. And when that person gets saved, the body of Christ will be complete and we will go up. And at that point, the prophetic plan of God will then move to the next chapter. And the prophetic clock of God will start again to finally tick. So who knows? That last person could be sitting with us even now here this morning. Or they could be at your workplace. Or they could be part of your family. So Peter's point is, let's hasten the day, guys. Let's be, you know, by our prayer and as we share, sort of, you know, working for the things that last and focused on the future as Peter encourages us next. Look at verse 13. He says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, what do we look for? We look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you remember the way that Revelation chapter 21 opened with these beautiful words? John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Then I, John, 
saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Doesn't that just sound good? So as believers in and as disciples of the Lord Jesus, we are not looking ultimately for our peace or our hope in this world temporarily. Instead, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to create and over which Jesus will rule and reign forever and ever and we will be a part of that for eternity. And I promise you this, you are going to be dead a lot longer than you're going to be alive. It's worth it. Peter's talking here about Isaiah chapter 65. Remember where, where the Lord declared that behold I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And remember we talked about the fact that that Hebrew word translated there as create is bara. And it refers to the act of creating something out of nothing, right? The new heavens and the new earth are not just going to be some kind of a renovated or restored version of the old. They're going to be brand new, right? Not stained at all or soiled by sin, but they will be the home of righteousness because the righteous one is going to be there. He says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Now read with me again just the first word of that first verse. It's therefore. So what that tells us is that at least in Peter's mind, the way that we live our lives as Christians is directly linked to the expectation that we have of the Lord's coming as we are living for these things that last. Right? We're to make it our business to live lives that are spotless and that are blameless just like Jesus the spotless one. And again, it's not the try harder program. It's just the practical result of that divine nature that's within each one of us. But he encourages us here to be diligent. Remember, be diligent to let that work to the outside what God's already done on the inside. We need to stay focused on the reality of eternity and let that be our motivation. And then let that be what produces the peace that our hearts are so desperately seeking. We can have peace because we have the hope of heaven. We can have peace because we know how this whole thing works out and we can have peace because we know that we are already without spot and blemish in the accounting of heaven. Remember, the great news of the gospel is that the moment you became a Christian, you were repositioned into Christ. Right? You were moved out of Adam's camp and you were put in Jesus' camp. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. And consequently, when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you with all of your spots and blemishes and sins. Instead, what he sees is the spotless and the blameless one, Jesus Christ. Right? So we apply the blood of his sacrifice, we become spotless and blameless positionally, 
And then as we continue to apply that same blood to our lives, we start to grow in our spotlessness and our blamelessness, and we have that peace practically until that time when he finally calls us home to be with him perpetually and perfectly. And we say, but I have failed so many times. Right? I have sinned so much. God is probably fed up with forgiving me. But I love the way Peter continues because it's almost as though Pastor Peter had anticipated these kinds of fears. And so he circles back, reminds us again of something he just said, right? When we start to wonder why God works the way that he works, whether it's in our lives or we wonder about why he's letting human history go on so long, Peter says in verse 15, we need to consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. God acts in divine patience towards us because his desire, remember, is to save us, right? not to condemn us. And so in the rest of verse 15, Peter continues, and he said, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. So apparently Peter had read Paul's letters, and he knew that the people he was writing to had read them too, and so he reminds them possibly of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 where he asked, do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So understand, this is important. Peter's point and Paul's point collectively is that it's God's patient with us. It's his goodness towards us. That's what leads us to repentance. Right? It's God's grace that draws us, but it's also his grace that keeps us. And so Peter's starting to tie all of this wonderful truth together. He says we need to live mindful of the word of God. We need to live remembering the will of God. We need to live for things that last. And we need to live constantly in the light of God's grace. And again, I know we might agree with that theologically, but we can really struggle with that personally. But in the very same way that we can appreciate and we can see the evidence of God's grace and his goodness as he's building his whole church corporately, right? The way he delays his judgment because he's calling out from among the people, the people for himself. When we understand that, then we start to understand his patience and his long suffering in each of our lives individually. Right? As he bears with us despite our failure and our sin and even our continued rebellion against him. Is it, is it hard for you to sometimes understand how God could possibly be so good to you? How, yeah, amen to that, right? How he could possibly be so good and how he could possibly be so gracious and how he could possibly be so loving. Right? It's hard for us to understand how our salvation could have so much to do with him and have so little to do with us. And if that's hard for you to understand, I want you to take comfort because you are not the only one to struggle with this. Because look what Peter says next. You're going to want to tune back in if you tuned out, and I apologize. But Peter says that Paul wrote about these very same issues Verse 16, as also in his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, 
which those who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So Peter says that, hey, Paul wrote about these very same things in his letters and that some of these things, Peter says, are a little hard to understand. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to say that's encouraging for me because I don't think I'm alone when I admit that sometimes as I read Paul, I come away and I wonder what in the world did he just say? Maybe that's just me. I know that most of you are much smarter than I am. But here's the real point that Peter's making. He's not talking about our initial difficulties in understanding what it was that Paul meant, but the difficulty of us comprehending the great truths that Paul taught. You see the difference? It's not Paul's style of writing that's difficult for us to understand. It's the incredible and the eternal subjects which Paul is trying to communicate. How do you clearly help people understand what our minds are fully incapable of fully understanding? Things like the Trinity and God's election and man's free will and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the, the mystery of suffering and in particular, God's inexhaustible grace. And this is what Peter is talking about here. This is what people were twisting to their own destruction in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Because Paul preached the grace of God and he preached the forgiveness of God, Paul preached grace so much that as his message to people that there was a group of people that misunderstood him to be preaching that it's okay to sin. That God is so gracious that it doesn't matter to him what we do. And that's what they said, but that's not at all what Paul taught, is it? What Paul taught, in Romans chapter 6, he said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Then he says, Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And that seems to be pretty clear. But here's the problem, and it's still a problem today that if you teach grace to the degree that the New Testament teaches grace, you will very often be accused of teaching easy grace or teaching cheap grace. But it's only when you really understand grace and you start to comprehend grace and you start to really appreciate and then appropriate grace, right? To really allow it to have its way in your life. You do it because you know that there is no such thing as cheap grace grace because of this tremendous price that was paid for us to be saved by grace and for us to have that grace in the Holy Spirit to live this life that God has called us to and to try to teach people to try to live by any other means is to twist the scriptures and to distort the Christian life. I love what one Greek scholar wrote about this. He said, I may just add that the verb twist, which the apostle uses here, signifies to distort, to put on the rack, to torture, to overstretch, and dislocate the limbs. And hence, the persons here intended, or the people he's talking about, are those who proceed according to no fair plan of interpretation, but force unnatural and sophistical meanings on the word of God. 
when we allow the body of Scripture to, seek, uh, to, to speak for itself, what we hear is we hear grace heralded all the way from the very first page of Genesis to that final page of the book of Revelation. And so Peter concludes simply here for the fourth time in this chapter. He's sharing his heart with his beloved, we who he loves so dearly, and he now closes out this very public yet yet wonderfully personal letter, first of all with a word of warning and then a word of encouragement. In verse 17 he says, you therefore beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. He says, look, because you know the end is coming and because you know the time is short and because you know that our God is gracious and you know that he's long suffering, he said, don't move away from those truths. In verse 18, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, before you check out completely, I want you to see what Peter just did here, because he just said that the key to standing fast is to grow. Right? Not to stand still, but to move ahead and to grow, both in our knowledge of Jesus, that's that gnosis, kind of real-life knowledge as we experience Jesus personally, and that comes as we grow in the grace of Jesus. So as last-day Christians, we don't just live in light of God's grace. We need to live always growing in God's grace. Because, again, grace isn't just the way that God draws us unto himself. It's also the way that we grow, and we can never grow beyond God's grace. Notice Peter doesn't say anything about God's grace growing, because God's grace is already infinite. So it can never be more than it already is. It is always everlasting. It's always bottomless. It's always endless. It is deeper than our deepest failures, right? We're swimming in the sea of God's grace. We can't be in a deeper sea, but we can grow now that we're in it. And we grow as we go deeper into it. And although all these things may be good, they're all important, I want us to notice this. Peter closes not by saying grow in devotion or grow in service or grow in zeal or even grow in holiness, but he closes simply by saying grow in grace. Because God's grace isn't just the starting point, it's the only point. So to these Christians, whom Peter penned these two very powerful letters, David, I'm at the top of 46 now. Not your fault, my fault, I just skipped four pages. So maybe to some of us who are here this morning and we are facing life and death kinds of trials, right? Or severe testings of our faith. Again, sometimes we're kind of looking for an excuse to just kind of check out Right, or just hunker down and, or hide in the world until this storm has finally passed. But Peter comes in and he says, Beloved, whatever the cost, he says, you stay faithful. And not just faithful, not just steadfast. He says, but then keep growing in that relationship with the Lord. 
right? Don't let persecution, don't let trial, don't let discouragement, don't let false teachers, don't even let tragedy or any of these other things that would draw us away from Jesus. He says, don't give up. He says, press in, keep growing in grace. And in the knowledge that this relationship that we have with God is based upon grace. So as we close, and I know that sounded like it was the close, but it was just the first close. This is the real close, right? It's a good one. You're not going to want to miss this, right? I want to remind us that maybe none of the other apostles, I think, understood grace experientially the way that Peter did. We think about Peter in the Gospels, right? We think about Peter even in the book of Acts as he struggled and had to be rebuked by Paul even at that point. We think about he made so many mistakes, he sinned so often, and he failed so greatly. Remember even as Jesus warned him that he would. Remember when Jesus said to him before the crucifixion, he said that Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat But I have prayed for you, Jesus said, that your faith should not fail. And he says, and when you have returned to me, Jesus says, strengthen your brethren. He says, strengthen them through your own example. Strengthen them in light of your own failure. Strengthen them in the grace of God. And strengthen them because that because of the grace of God, that failure doesn't need to be the final word in the life of any child of God. However great that failure may be, it's not the final word in your life. God's grace has the final word in our lives. And here's a man at the end of his ministry. Here's a man potentially days away from the end of his life. And he's a man without the slightest hint of regret at all having been able now to spend his life in this way, growing in the grace of God and now encouraging other people to do the very same thing. Right, to live for Jesus and continue to maintain that living hope of heaven. Now we're done, amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and we do thank you so much for Peter, Lord, and we thank you for the life that he lived, Lord. We thank you for the faith that he developed, Lord, and we thank you for the way that he grew so mightily, Lord, and grew so powerfully in your grace. Father, that he knew that he wasn't great in and of himself, Lord, but he was great because of you. So I pray, Lord, for any of us this morning who are discouraged, Lord, or disheartened. Lord, as we continue to struggle or as we look at the world around us, Lord, I pray that you would sustain us with your amazing grace, Lord, and that we would simply continue to grow deeper in our knowledge of Jesus, Lord, as we just explore his beauty and his wonder, Lord, and we thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand and let's worship the Lord together quickly.